Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. If I have not gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Tim and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are so delighted that you are here this morning. And, uh, you know, Jeff mentioned earlier a time of giving. And I, as one of your pastors, want to thank you for how generous you guys are. Because you guys give to Bridgewater, we are able to do some incredible things. In fact, you're giving to God through Bridgewater. And because you give to God, we have been able to do some fun things like the mud run. Because you guys give to God, we're able to see people baptized. Because you guys give to God, we're able to give away Financial Peace University. And so I genuinely want to thank you for all of your generosity. It is incredible to see you guys continue to be faithful to him. Well, we are in week three of our series. Week one, we talked about singleness. Then last week, Joel talked about dating. And then today, we're talking about marriage. And so one time, I saw Andy Stanley preach on marriage, and he illustrated it by using a box like this. And uh, basically, we all have an invisible box filled with all of our dreams, desires, and hopes. And there are things inside of all of our boxes that we have that we bring into our relationships. Things like how much money are we going to make? And how am I going to use a budget? And what am I going to spend my money on? Things like, what kind of car am I going to drive? Am I going to drive something fast and fancy looking? Or am I going to drive something more like this? Or what kind of home will I live in? Will I rent or will I buy? We have all of these dreams and these desires. And when you bring those into a relationship or into a marriage, you wonder who is going to do what kind of chores? Who's going to clean? Who is going to cook? And then you think about your big dream to infinity and beyond. What is that going to be? Or maybe you wonder about your family. Am I going to have a family? Are we going to have any kids? Are we going to have one kid? Are we going to have a full basketball team? And each of you, when you go into a relationship, you have these hopes and these dreams and these desires that we bring into a relationship. Whether you're dating or you're married, we've all brought these desires and these dreams and these hopes. And when you come into that relationship, we come to that marriage ceremony. To us, we are bringing a box and it feels like to us hopes, dreams, and desires. And you come to the altar and you hand that to somebody else. And to them, it feels differently. It can feel like expectations, and that can create a weight, or it can create a tension in the relationship. You see, here's the definition of expectation. Expectation, it's a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. And so when I was single, I was not daydreaming about being the perfect person. I was daydreaming about finding the right person for me. You see, I, I wanted Shana to be the right person for me. And so when I entered into that relationship, I brought a box filled with hopes, dreams, and desires. And when she came into the relationship, it was a much smaller box because she's more godly and more humble. And she brought a box, and it can feel like to the other person expectations that can weigh on your relationship, that can cause tensions in our relationship. 
So the question is, how do we bring our legit hopes, dreams, and desires into a relationship without them feeling like expectations? In other words, what are the right goals for marriage? That's what we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be talking about marriage goals. And like Jeff said, this is not the time to put a sharp elbow into the rib of the person next to you or <clears throat> clear your throat or attention getting. Ladies, your husband can take his own notes. He will, I trust. So Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 21. While you're turning there, let me set the stage for you. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's talking about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to live your life for Jesus? And he, and he changes the, in chapter 4. He moves from this is your identity, this is who you are, and he shifts to how do I live that out? And in chapter 5, he's talking about imitating Jesus. And as he's talking about imitating Jesus, he gets to the subject of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, let's start reading in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So every single person should live their lives out of reverence for Christ. That idea of reverence is awe and respect and fear, but not necessarily the fear like I'm shaking in my boots. It's the fear, it's this awe, it's this respect. Like if you've ever gone and seen anything really incredible like Niagara Falls, or if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, or you've ever seen anything that was just breathtaking, when you stand there before Niagara Falls, or you stand there before the Grand Canyon, you can't help but to be in complete awe and wonder. That's the idea of reverence. And Paul says, all of us should have a reverence for God, a desire to live for him, a desire to honor him. And out of that, 
there should be a mutual submission. Meaning Jesus needs to be the foundation of your life. And he needs to be the foundation of your marriage. If he's not the foundation of your marriage, you are building your house on sand. And so the first goal of marriage is to honor God. That you would make Jesus the center of your marriage. You would put him right in the middle of it. And everything that happens in that marriage would revolve around him. It's the idea of Jesus being your supreme authority. He is in all control. I am living my life knowing that I am striving to honor Jesus. Whether you're single, single again, or married, or whatever your relationship status is, this is for all of us. He says, everybody ought to submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. So the first goal in your marriage ought to be, I'm going to honor God. That even though I have these dreams, even though I have these desires, even though I have these hopes, I am making it my goal to honor God in everything that I do and everything that I say. I want to please him with my marriage. And then he goes on, verse 25. Notice what he says here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, men, you are the head of your family. That's your role. And when you got married, God sees you as the leader of your family. And he says, you, I, we need to love our wives the same way that Jesus loved the church. What does that even mean? Well, think about how Jesus loved the church. He loved the church so much that he gave his life for her. He loved the church so much that he willingly came to earth and he died on the cross. He was humiliated. He was mocked. He paid for all of your sins, all of my sins, so he could cancel the debt. He sacrificially gave of himself. Husbands, that's what we are supposed to do. Men, when's the last time you sacrificed for your wife? When's the last time you gave up something that you wanted, something that you desired for the needs or wants of your wife? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He literally laid down his life and died for his bride. Every single day, every single week, every single month, the husband, every moment, your job, your role is to love your wife with a self-sacrificing effort. Be a lover and die to self. That's the second goal. That as a husband, you would lay down your life and you would die to self. Tim, I don't even know what that means. We're going to get into that. So first, we honor God. 
Second, we die to self. But what does that look like? What does it look like to love your wife? What does it look like to self-sacrifice? What does it look like to die to self? Guys, I have 10 practical ways you can love your wife or 10 practical ways you can die to self. Number one, you can actually help with the dishes. That might be a shock to you. Now, I know some of you probably already do that, but come on, help with the dishes at least twice a week. Care for the children. If you have little kids in your house, take care of them so that your wife has some free time to go and do whatever it is that she wants to do. Put down the TV remote and just spend some time with your kids to say, go out, do something. Do the fix-it jobs. Or if you're not handy, pay someone to do the fix-it jobs. No throat clearing. Let your husband take his own notes. Number four, be willing to talk and listen to her about her concerns. And don't belittle her for having those concerns. Don't, don't shrug it off and say, that's not a big deal. That's nothing to really worry about. For her, she's worrying about it. For her, she's concerned. Even if it doesn't phase you. Listen. Number five, ask her advice when you have a problem or decision to make. But Tim, I thought I was the leader. You are. Good leadership involves other people in the problems and in the situations. If you think you are always the smartest person in the room, you are a poor leader in your family, in the work, in the church. Good leadership includes other voices because your wife and your kids and the other people in the room, they will have different perspectives and they will ask different questions. Number six, discuss plans with her before making decisions. Some of you guys, you think it's okay just to go over, buy a new car and show up at home. Be like, hey, look, brand new Corvette. What do you think? You didn't even talk to her. Watching what she wants on TV or Netflix I know a lot of your wives want to watch Hallmark or they want to watch those sappy shows and movies. It's give and take. Number eight, remember to tell her when you must work late. Just call her, send her a text. Those are little things that mean a lot to her. Number nine, if you have little kids, let her sleep in once in a while. Get the kids up, get them breakfast, get them out the door, or just get them out of the house or get them away because they are loud and noisy. Give her an opportunity to do that. Number 10, don't nitpick and find faults, giving her the impression that you expect her to be perfect. These are a bunch of ways that you can love your wife. These are a bunch of ways that of what it looks like to die to self. My challenge to you, if you're a husband, pick two and do them this week. Just see what happens. And I would imagine that many of you are already doing some of these things. I'm not saying that you're not doing any of them. Pick two that you're not doing or that you haven't done in a while. and Start doing them. Men, what would happen in your marriage if you began just to do some of these little tiny tweaks what would happen in your relationship? How would that impact all of our marriages if we just started doing one or two of these little tiny changes? Experts in air navigation have a rule of thumb known as the one in 60 rule. That for every one degree a plane veers off course, it misses its target by one mile for every 60 miles you fly. That means the further you fly, the further you get off course. 
So after one degree, after one foot, you miss by 0.2 inches. Not a big deal, right? But after 100 yards, you are off course by five feet. After a mile of being off course by one degree, you are off by 92 feet. If you veer off course by one degree and you fly all the way around the equator, you are off course by 500 miles. The point is, one degree, a small change, can radically change the course for good or bad. So guys, what happens if we decide to step up and just change the dial by one degree and start doing some of these things, honoring God and dying to self? Guys, you are the spiritual leader in your family. Listen to what Paul says in verse 26. Here's what we are supposed to do to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Guys, you are the X factor in your marriage. You have an incredible amount of potential to lead your wife and your family to be more like Christ. That it's, it's your job to lead your family, to lead your wife spiritually, to make sure that they're here in church to read the Bible with your family or to pray with your family, to pray with your kids. I know for some of you that's super intimidating. You're like, I don't even know how to do that. Like, does that mean I have to write a whole sermon or a Sunday school lesson? What are you talking about? I'm talking about just opening up the Bible. If you have little kids, read something in the Old Testament. Read David and Goliath and, and talk about what, what do you think David felt like when he faced Goliath? What do you think God was doing here? Or open up the Bible and read with your family and just say, hey, what stuck out to you? What did you think about this? Or why would Jesus feed 5,000 people? Just ask a couple of questions and pray with them. It can be five minutes or 25 minutes. But guys, your job is to lead your family spiritually. It's your responsibility. One day you will give an account to God for your wife. She should become more like Jesus because she's married to you. Then in verse 28, it says, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his own body. Consider her perspective Seek to understand it. Consider what she wants. If you can do it, do it. I'm not saying that she runs the show, but you are the leader. Lead your family. Understand the needs and the wants and desires of your wife. That requires us to ask questions, close our mouths, open up our ears, and be a learner. Then, verse 22 he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. So guys, you have to have the credibility to lead your wife. If you don't have that credibility, she's not going to follow very well. You could be making her job harder. 
So if you don't have that credibility, it's time to step up and start doing that and make Jesus the center of your life. Honor God with your decisions. And ladies, your role is, well, it says the word submit. And I know that can send off all sorts of bells and whistles and alarms. And you're like, Tim, what are you telling me to do? I'm a woman and I can do it better than anybody else. Not trying to step on your toes. But the word submit doesn't mean that you are a doormat. It doesn't mean that you should be or can be abused physically, emotionally, or spiritually. It's just, there's got to be a leader. And in God's design, he put the husband as the leader and the wife follows his lead. And so submission, it carries the idea of ranking yourself underneath. Elise Fitzpatrick says it really good. She says, submission isn't a matter of who is smarter or the most deserving. Submission in marriage is simply another reflection of the beautiful pattern of the roles seen in the Trinity. Wait, what? Yeah, there is mutual submission happening in the Trinity. Let me show you this. Jesus submits to the Father. He says, I can only do what the Father tells me to do. I can only say what the Father tells me to say. And the Son, Jesus, he prays on your behalf, and the Father listens. And the Father grants those prayer requests. And the Holy Spirit is called the Helper. So it's not a derogatory term to be a helper or to be submissive. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. Submission is not an authoritative rule. It's about a unified purpose. But let me ask you this, ladies, and you can answer out loud. Is it easy or hard to follow a guy who sacrificially loves? Easy, right? Guys, is it easy or hard to lead somebody who is willing to follow you? Easy. God gave these roles to work together. And I know we are not perfect people. And some of these marriages in our church maybe are on life support. And you're thinking, Tim, it is too far gone. I'm not asking you to fix your spouse. Our job as husbands is to know our role and to play it well. Wives, your job is to know your role and to play it well. Submitting requires you to die to self. It's about dying to self. It's really under, important here. God is not asking you to follow a husband who wants you to sin. In fact, this is what Elise Fitzpatrick says. She says, the scripture is clear that the wife is to be submissive to her husband in all things unless her husband asks her to sin. So wives, you are called to submit to your husband's leadership, but recognize he is a combination of strengths and weaknesses. So I gave the guys a bunch of things they could do to love their wives. All right, ladies, it's your turn. Here are 10 practical ways you can love your husband or submit to his leadership. One, practice good communication. Be honest and keep current. If there's issues, talk about those problems. Keep current. Number two, ask questions instead of making accusations 
or bottom line statements. So example, honey, can you help me understand why you made that statement versus I can't believe you said that. That's probably never happened in anyone's home. Number three, show grace in your words and tone of voice. Four, use words and tones that edify. Build him up when he fails. Ladies, we make mistakes. We do fail. We don't want to admit it, but we do. Number five, avoid gossip or being critical of your husband in public or privately to others who are not a part of the solution. Number six, choose to believe the best about him. This really could be for all of us, right? We need to work at choosing to believe the best. Pray for him. Show confidence in his decisions. Don't resent past failures. He will fail. He will make mistakes. Number 10, let him make the final decision and give him the right to fail without saying, I told you so. <laughs> These are 10 practical ways to follow the lead of your husband or to die to self. Like I gave the guys, pick one or two and try to do them this week. I know you're probably already doing some of these, so pick one or two that you're not doing and work on doing them. 1 Peter 3 says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won, without, won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So, Ladies, if you're married to a, an unbeliever, Peter is writing to a group of Christians that are being persecuted for their faith. And maybe part of that persecution is living with an unbelieving husband or living with an unbelieving wife. So how do you do that? Peter says, look, wives, you may be living with a, a husband who is not a Christian. He doesn't care about Jesus. He doesn't want to come to church. What do I do about that? Peter says, you know what? Your behavior, the way you live your life, can communicate more than any other sermon we preach here at Bridgewater. Your behavior, God can use how you live your life to radically transform your husband. Your behavior, not your words, not your elbows, being Christ-like. And I know for some of you, in your specific situation, that's hard. And I don't pretend to know all the details of all the relationships in this room. I know for some of you, it feels like I'm just pushing really, really hard. And I really want to encourage you today. If your marriage feels like it is on the brink of disaster, there is hope for your marriage. Maybe you've been married for years or decades and you're like, Tim, it is an absolute mess. I have no idea where to even start. Here's my encouragement to you. Just start with your role. Honor God. In the little things that you can do, honor him. One step at a time, one degree at a time. Look for areas that you can die to self, and put your spouse first. It doesn't mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean allowing abuse to take place. The other thing I would say is, here's the third goal. Be experts in forgiveness, not each other's failures. 
I've done some marriage counseling and most people come to me not because things are going great, but because things are a mess. And I would say the biggest thing that breathes new life into a marriage or any relationship is forgiveness. I'm not talking about empty, shallow forgiveness. Jesus talks about taking the plank out of your own eye, owning your own sin. And, you know, it's like um, 9-11. When those towers came down, there was a lot of rubble. Some of you remember that like it was yesterday. And the first thing they had to do is, is, is look for people, look for survivors, but then they had to clear the rubble. They had to clear all of that debris. And then after they cleared all of that, they had to wipe it clean. Then they could start over. That is the same with our marriages. If you have a pile of unresolved conflict and problems and pain and hurt and sin just piled up, you can't just start building on that. You have to clear the rubble. And the way you clear the rubble is through forgiveness. Here's what Jesus, or here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.29. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Earlier I said, Jesus says that we take the plank out of our own eye. We need to own our sin. And so part of resolving conflict, part of, of, of breathing this new life into our marriage is owning our sin and going to our spouse and say, here's how I've sinned against you. It is nobody a favor to say, hey, if I, if I hurt you in the past year, I'm sorry. That's cheap. That's shallow. What I mean is we need to be really specific. We need to say things like, hey, yesterday when I was talking to you, I was harsh and rude. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then immediately, shut your mouth. No more buts, no ifs, no if you, it's done. Will you forgive me? Don't excuse it. Or you say, hey, you know, earlier today my attitude was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That has to be the pattern and the habits that take place in our relationships. Or, or it's going to your spouse and it's saying, hey, last couple weeks I've been late coming home and I haven't given you a heads up. And I know you've been working hard at keeping the kids and running the ship and getting dinner ready and whatever. And, and I've, been, I've been rude. I'm not giving you a heads up. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? It's being specific and asking them to forgive you, owning your sin. And when you forgive, you're making a three-part commitment. Let me show you that. Here's forgiveness. Number one, when you say, I forgive you, here's what you're promising to say. I will not bring this up to you again. It is done. I forgive you. Your debt is canceled. Number two, I will not bring this up to other people ever again, not even as a prayer request. Number three, I will not dwell on it. I will not bring it up to myself. That's probably the hardest one. If someone comes to me and says, Tim, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And I say, yes, I will forgive you. This is the promise I'm making. This is how Jesus forgave you and I. 
He hasn't brought it up to you again. He has not brought it up to anybody else. And he's not thinking about it anymore. So as married people, if we want to figure out a way to keep our legit hopes, dreams, and desires as things that aren't expectations, we need to honor God, we need to die to self, and we need to be experts in forgiveness. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, we are um, overwhelmed by some of the things that are happening in this world, and we recognize there is a lot of pain and hurt in our relationships, and we know that there's a lot of marriages that are going through difficulty today. And I don't pretend to know everything about everything that's happening, but I think of all of the husbands and the wives that are here and the husbands and wives that aren't here, and as they go through the challenges of marriage, I pray that you would help our husbands to step up and lead, to honor you, help our husbands to die to self and to make it the regular practice to seek for forgiveness and grant forgiveness. God, I ask the same thing for our ladies. They would seek to honor you. They would seek to die to self. They would seek to look after and look for forgiveness and grant forgiveness and truly understand what does that mean. And God, I ask that you would radically transform the marriages in this room the ones that aren't here, the ones that are listening online, that you would breathe new life into these relationships, that today would be a new day to step forward and honor you in our marriages. Father, we thank you for all that you do. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Last week, we introduced a new song called Again and Again, and we're going to we're gonna 